number 40, I feel I can schedule my own time well. You're an adult person. Just use a calendar. (laughs) Welcome to Working Code with your three hosts who never make off by one errors. Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. Okay, here we go. It is show number 97. And on today's show, we're going to talk about expectations of professional software engineers, which maybe, I don't know how trendy this is right now, but Tim sent us this article called Expectation of Professional Software Engineers. And uh, we thought we would have a a go at discussing it. So uh, we're going to get into that. Carol couldn't be with us tonight. Something came up with her at work at the last minute. So just the boys tonight. But as usual, we're going to start with our triumphs and fails. Looks like it's my turn to go first. So I'm going to start us off strong on a triumph. I didn't want to come to the podcast. I didn't want to eat dinner today because I (laughs) spent the vast majority of my day working on Svelte code and it's so much fun. I just didn't want to put it down, right? Mm -hmm. It was that kind of day. Like, just don't leave, leave me alone. Don't bother me. Don't, I'm not going to check my email. I'm not going to do, there was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. It was just like going deep in the code and having a great time. And, and that was, that's why you're late to recording tonight, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And then I guess I'll throw this out there as well. I didn't know it at the time, but last week when Ben and I recorded, I was starting to come down with strep throat. So if I was sounding particularly gravelly or terrible on the recording, sorry about that. I thought you'd just taken up smoking. (laughs) Shh. Don't tell my mom. (laughs) Yep. So that's it for me. How about you? So so, what's so great about Svelte? No. Oh, what's so great about Svelte? What are you loving about it? So the thing that I love about Svelte is that the way that you organize your components just makes perfect sense to me. I've, for the last year or so, I've kind of like been on the side of CSS in JS makes sense, right? So you write like React components and have some sort of CSS solution baked into your components instead of having separate CSS files. And there's a couple of different solutions for that. And it's kind of a polarizing topic, really, you know, People tend to either love it or hate it. And I came down on the side of love it because for me, I want to open a single file and look, okay, here's everything I need to know about my component. There's the the logic about it, the DOM structure, right? The HTML and the styling all in one place. And the, so CSS and JS with like something like React or Vue, that felt like a, a step in the right direction to me. Svelte seems like it's the exact same, you know, you're moving in the same direction, just going further. So Svelte, if I can summarize it quickly, is basically it compiles the code that you write. So it's it's it doesn't have to be pure JavaScript or anything like that. It actually kind of looks like an HTML file, right? You've got a script mm-hmm. block at the top. You write some JavaScript in there. You got what looks like HTML in the middle with a little bit of just a tiny bit of DSL mixed in. And then you've got a, a style block at the bottom and you just write components this way. And the the thing that I love about this the most is that when you delete a component because you no longer need it, it takes the style with it. It takes Mm -hmm. the JavaScript with it. Right? You don't have to go track down all this ancillary stuff. And is Mm -hmm. it safe to delete this? I don't know. Maybe let's try it and see if anything breaks. So yeah, it it just makes perfect sense to me. And then the, the because Svelte is compiled, it can be a very terse language. And then it kind of adds it, the compiler adds in all the complexity that you have to kind of do manually when you're doing something like React. So okay. modern versions of React, you have to use hooks, right? So you've got these use effect and use state and use ref and all these other hooks. 
and they're very complex things to think about. And with Svelte, it's not really that complex at all. I'm not going to go on a, on a React rant for a second, but I think when I think about Svelte, and I started to play around a little bit with Svelte, they have a really cool uh, like step-by-step interactive tutorial where it's like mm-hmm. they have a little, almost like a code pen kind of, here's the thing you do on the top, and then here's the output on the bottom. I started to work through that. Yeah. It, it seems interesting, but, but I, I think I don't yet have my head wrapped around at all if this is more user facing, more likely I'm sprinkling JavaScript into something that might otherwise be a relatively flat experience, or is this something that you would really build into, say, like an administrative backend that's more of like a single page application feel? Svelte itself was written originally by a guy who worked at the New York Times to create little like interactive demos like of concepts from the articles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Islands. And right. So you're thinking, you know, a newspaper article, it's mostly text, right? And then right, there's right, little right. bits of interactivity throughout or whatever. And so that was where Svelte was born. And more recently, they have also created Svelte Kit, which is like, it's sort of like the Next.js mm-hmm. version of Svelte or, or Svelte's answer to Next.js. So it's the full stack framework. Svelte itself was client side only. And then Svelte Kit allows you to do server-side rendering and the full stack. Gotcha. Yeah, it's definitely something I want to play around with. Everyone who uses it seems to love it. Seems worth an investigation. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, and so you mentioned the islands. It's funny, that's kind of the... That, so that's the name of the branch that I've been working in is Svelte Islands. <laughs> so we have this one feature that's been just like this thorn in our side for a while because it was one of the first things that we implemented and it's extremely complex and it's very dense. There's a lot of information packed into this one little feature. It's extremely heavily cached because there's a crap load of data that gets like brought down. So we have like, basically we have a view in our monolith that spits out several megabytes of JSON data. And then we, you know, put in all the caching headers and all kinds of extra, we go through, we jump through a whole bunch of hoops to make sure that you're going to have to download that as infrequently as possible. And then also that when we need to, we can force the cache to clear. Mm-hmm. And it is just such a thorn in our side because there are sometimes that we want it to clear quickly and sometimes that we don't. And also, you know, your first hit to that page takes forever because you have to download megs and megs of JSON data to be able to load this interface. And so we're making it this, this basically I'm replacing a whole... It's crazy when I say it. It's all this data, all this interactivity is baked into one little modal. You know, it's got, and there's like tabs down the side of the modal. And then, you know, inside of each tab, you can. Uh, <laughs> I feel like, like we've all built something like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Dozens, like inside of each tab, you, there's a select, and, and each, and that select can have like dozens or, you know, maybe 20, 30 options in it. And then when you select one of those things in the drop down, then that changes everything else inside the, the, the what's left visible of the modal. It's very complex and and yeah, so ripe for disruption and and so I'm I'm writing Svelte and it's and it, it's crazy because this this monolith is written in Bootstrap and uh, like Common JS bundles and jQuery and I am jumping through a few hoops here to basically create a div inside that modal and I'm recreating the all the modal contents using Svelte. It's a little mm-hmm. weird to like Svelte then create bootstrap stuff and it, it feels wrong, but at the same time, like it's working. So very cool. All right. So if I can just go on like a really quick 
React rant for a second. <laughs> <laughs> this ain't about React. We were talking so we were talking spell. No, 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 no. I, I said I wouldn't for a moment. <laughs> I, I so I'm, I'm sure many of you have heard of a uh, Adi Asmani. He's a, a oh, Google yeah. developer. He's he's very well known, and he and this woman Lydia Haley released this patterns.dev, which I think is I don't know if it's part of Google because they I think Google has a bunch of dev sites. Anyway, they have a basically what amounts to a learning design patterns, but in the context of React. And, and it's a pretty significantly in-depth book. It's like 430 pages or something. It's it's intense and it's it's free though, so that's pretty amazing. And so I I I to say that I read it is like in the loosest sense of the word. I think I read maybe like the first hundred pages and then skimmed the rest. And and mostly the skimming was because I just, I don't do React. So it didn't, like, I didn't want to spend too much time on it. But I, I'll tell you, man, the, when he starts to talk about hooks, this is, so you brought up hooks. That's the only reason that popped into my head. So he brings up hooks and he's talking about, oh, before, before functional components and before hooks, we had class-based components in React. And you had all these like component will mount and component will unmount or did mount. I don't know the names. I'm not a React developer here. And, and I'm so used to lifecycle hooks, uh, lifecycle methods, like framework one on the cold fusion side, where you can have before and after and, and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And then obviously Angular is very heavy on classes and, and lifecycle methods there as well. So then he compares, he's like, Oh, this is the 150 lines it would take to do this in a class based component. And here's like the 12 lines it would take to do it with hooks. But I'll tell you, man, looking at hooks. If you don't have a really strong grasp of what hooks does, it's like line of mm-hmm. magic that feeds into next line of magic, which is a dependency on the next line of magic. And then suddenly everything just renders. And it's like, it's like I couldn't even point to the code and be like, this is where the logic is happening. Like, I don't even know where the logic is happening. It's, I, I, I sometimes think of the people who are so deep in that world forget mm-hmm. how magical that stuff is. And, and they, I don't know if I'm just so unfamiliar with it that it seems so crazy. Not crazy, so foreign and so unintuitive. But I don't know. You just get so mired in 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 how things work that maybe I think you forget a little bit that it's not so obvious to everyone else. I'm going to have to search through my YouTube history here. There's a great conference talk that I saw where a guy basically re-implements React from scratch by writing what looks like it should be a React app but not importing React and then like creating his own version of React that satisfies the requirements of being able to run the app. And so, and so basically he kind of describes some of some hooks like state. And I think it might might just be use state, but there some of the hooks uh, from first principles, right? So like, okay, we've got this use state thing here. How do we make it do what we want to do? And by going through and implementing it, you kind of see why it has the restrictions that it does. Like you can't use it inside of an if statement. It has to be in the root of the right, right, right. component or whatever. It's just super, it's super interesting. I, I, I don't quite get it, but people love it. Although I'll tell you, and I'm, again, this is not just a hate on React. I'm just, I watch from the outside, but it mm-hmm. does seem like there's been this now divergence where the React community appears to be losing people. Like there, there are people now. From what I see, again, this is basically just from listening to podcasts. So I'm very are much they going on the to spell. A lot of people are going to spell. A lot of people are going to view. I think there, there are a lot of people who are like, it, it, 
it's now taken me, you know, hundreds of lines of code to solve problems that React introduced in the first place that I could have just solved like in a much more straightforward way using something else. And it's it's almost like React's become its own reason oh, for being. I, don't I'm, I'm not, say. I mean, it's not like Angular doesn't have the exact. No, 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 same no, no, no. I'm not. A hundred percent. I'm just saying. I think. I think people are. I think the uh, the shininess of React appears to be starting to wear off a little bit. Yeah. So I found the talk. It's called "Deconstructing React" by Tejas Kumar, and I, I put. A, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Cool. Done. I'm done with my rant. <laughs> rant over. Okay. That's good. Your time cool. for try and prevail. Yeah. <laughs> what do you got going on, man? I'm going to go with double fail here. Oh, First no. fail. Yeah. First boom, fail. Boom, boom. I, <laughs> I have, this is going to sound so morbid. Uh, I have just been feeling like I'm running out of time just with everything in my life, with work, with physical health, with uh, with my dog. I just like everything I feel like. I just feel like I don't have enough time to do things. I don't have enough time to, I don't know. I can't even articulate it. It just, it just feels like I'm running out of time. Is it that you're super busy or you just, you just feel like things are coming to an end in general? I think the end of the legacy platform at work is probably a huge part of it. And that makes it feel that just exacerbates every other anxiety that I have. So there's the ending of the, of, of that. There's, there's just, I've been having some, a lot of knee pain and some shoulder pain and some wrist pain. I feel like, I feel like my body's falling apart a little bit. And <laughs> I, I just, I watch my emails just amass and I can't seem to motivate to reply to anybody and, and, and follow through on things. And then, we, you know, we moved to a house, a new house in July and, and it's just like, I can't motivate to do anything here. Like I, I know I have to fix some things and, and start to organize and figure out, you know, if we want to do any thing around the house, like any improvements and, and just like everything, I, I feel so overwhelmed and I don't know how to, I don't know how to move forward. I, I almost feel like I need to just take out a giant whiteboard and write down all the things that give me this anxiety. And just start picking one at a time and trying to do something about it. Because right now it's just it's just swirling around in my head and I don't know how to mm. it just feels it feels overwhelming and I don't know how to deal with it effectively. Good buddy, it sounds like you're depressed. Yeah, I, I, I do feel same depressed thing. sometimes. Yeah. I I it does it does feel like depression sometimes, for sure. But then I have really good days sometimes. But so yeah. For anybody else, I mean, also for your benefit, if it helps, but for anybody else that's listening that might feel the same way, start by going to your primary care doctor and explain the situation. They'll probably do a like a questionnaire with you to it's like a depression assessment sort of thing. Just mm-hmm. a bunch of simple questions. You rate how often you feel that way. And then based on like the total score, they may or may not, you know, prescribe you antidepressants and they may recommend that you see a therapist. Yeah. I actually have done this. Cool coming up soon, yeah yeah so. I, i'm on antidepressants and i have done therapy and both have helped me tremendously and i hate the stigma associated with it and i'm not afraid yeah. to to tell people like, yep. it's so helpful yeah i mean if you can get it covered with by your insurance and can af- or can afford it therapy is a wonderful thing i, I mm-hmm. mean it can help even if you don't maybe even need med- medication just be able to talk to someone who's a professional to kind of help you unpack 
because everything you said there was was emotional based, right? It was all yeah. coming from a place of emotion. It, they'll help you sort out, you know, what is just fear and emotion and what is actually factual based. And then you can attack the actual problem rather than just feeling the feeling. It really helps. So uh, yeah, you got you a physical though, coming up. Definitely take Adam's advice there. My, my wife's been trying to find a therapist. She's, been, she's seen therapists on and off for years. And, and she said it's been really, really challenging to find people. Like she'll find a place locally and she'll go talk to them and they say they're not accepting new patients. Yeah. And there's a huge shortage right now. Yeah. So that's one failure. And the other failure. That's a double one. <laughs> double, double whammy, which in a way feeds into this one only because I, I get so frustrated. So there are things I do on a day-to-day basis at work that I feel really confident about and, and I feel like I'm continuing to get better in a lot of ways. And I'm, I'm psyched about that. Pretty, pretty stoked. But there are things that just continue to feel challenging. And I never, I don't, there are, there are a lot of things at work that I just don't feel like I'm getting better at. And every time I go to work on them, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm just solving the problem slightly differently in a new way each time because nothing feels right. And I hate that. I, I, I hate the fact that certain things just elude me. That it, it it feels like there's just some mental block. I'm, I'm not, I don't know how to get past. Like I'm working right now on, on cascading deletes. In the database? Data, yes, but not at the database level. Meaning mm. uh, the thing that I'm working on right now is, is deleting an entire user from the system. And the user owns a bunch of things. And those things are containers for lots of other things. And all those things can be individually deleted by the user themselves. So... There's all kinds of different ways that a deletion of a thing can happen, or I should say that that's how our system is built, and and figuring out how to then initiate a delete from the, the next level up so that all those other things become deleted, and, and it happens in a performant way, meaning I'm not just like the user doesn't click and see a spinner for three minutes while I'm you know, busy deleting tens of thousands of, of various cascading records. And I, I don't know, like I just, I've, you know, been deleting data for 20 years and, and it still feels like every time I go to do something other than a basic crud level, like I'm deleting this one record. It's like, I just, I don't have a strategy and it, and it really bothers me. And it, it makes me feel like not a doofus, right? I mean, it's a complex problem, but I just, I get very frustrated that I don't have a plan and I'm just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Sounds like the type of thing that would be tempting to hunt for a general solution, but it's probably not worth finding a general solution for, right? Unless you're talking about, you know, something that's going to go literally 30, 40, you know, layers deep, right? User deletes this, deletes that, deletes that 40 times. Unless it's like that, you know, you're probably better off just, okay, w- what needs to be deleted when I delete a user and hard code those things in <laughs> and, you know, do that however far down the, the stack of turtles that you have to go. And that, that's, yeah. that's more or less the strategy that I'm taking. But this is where, so we had talked a little bit on, on the pre-show about technical debt. And this is where there's no pre-show just to be, this is just before we start recording, just so you know, your patrons aren't missing out on anything. There's no pre-show subscription There's no level. double secret pre-show. Taping. Yeah, sorry. First rule pre-show. You don't talk about pre-show. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is, it's one of those things where 
if, if you could build it all from scratch, then maybe it would work right. But there's so much cruft that's been built into the system over the years that mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I'll just call this method because it's doing a lot of the delete that I'm worried about. And then you look in that method and it has all kinds of weird logic that's, you're like, oh, that shouldn't be here. That's unrelated. Or it's like only peripherally related in certain edge cases. Like that should really be somewhere else and orchestrated somehow. But I don't know. That's definitely I, tech that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's, that's my, that's my second failure. Just that there are things that continue to be hard no matter how many times I try to solve that problem. I just never come up with something that feels like, ah, this was the right way. Finally, I figured it out. It just continues to be hard every time. Mm. So anyway, Tim, what about you? Welcome back, Tim. Well, hey, hey, thanks. Good to be back. Yeah. So sorry to, after that emotional outpouring to come up back with a triumph here. I feel bad. <laughs> so we're going to do a, a turd sandwich here. <laughs> right. Yeah, we got turd sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so this is my first show back after. 10 days in London and it was fantastic. Got to, it was there for London for work. We have a leadership conference for our, you know, our parent company, Valeris, which is, so there's like 1200 people. We've had an entire hotel in you know, London and we call it the quadrants. So basically it's like they're just getting people together to network and like best practices as far as companies go, but got, flew in a little early so I could visit my family. So I've got some family that live in England, but most of them are not in London anymore. So a uh, cousin got to hang out with him. I haven't seen him in 20 something years and gave him a bunch of hot sauces. We did our own little hot ones challenge <laughs> at the pub at Witherspoons. People are like watching us. Yeah. I, I blew his taste buds out. And then, and then also got to meet Adam Cameron. I know, of course I've met him before and over here, but you know, he came to, came down to visit me our, our my number one our number one hater here on the show Heck yeah. although we got along so well i don't know if we still qualify as haters anymore because he's really a, a lovely lovely guy just had a really good time well, chat with him did did you eat after midnight with him or get him wet <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i got him wet but we definitely ate before midnight so <laughs> but no we had a nice time Picturing Carol having no idea what that was a reference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Carol's like, I don't get it. Why would you get him wet? <laughs> <laughs> no, but that that was that was that was super fun. But yeah, well, one thing I find odd. So this this is a so our Valeris is part of Constellation Software, which is a huge company that all they do is they buy software companies and so vertical software companies. These are companies that are not anything you would ever hear of. These are we sell to businesses and we like help run their business. And it's like, there was very little topics that dealt with code quality, which bothered me. There's a whole lot of like, you know, how to get your, your you know, all these, we have all these ratios, you know, your core ratio, your, your EBITDA, your EBITDA B, how to get all, you know, it's all, there's a whole lot of like moving numbers around and try to like get to your numbers. But it's like at the end of the day, we're all software companies. If you have good software, it should be much easier to sell good software and to make money off good software. So a little surprised that there wasn't more content along that regards. They do probably have, I know they have other conferences that deal directly with that, but yeah, it's, it's just, I think at a software company, you really should, number one job should be delivering good <laughs> software, not, so, not budgeting. Do, do you get the opportunity? I don't know like how you personally fit into the org structure there, but like, do, would you have the opportunity to put your thumb on the scale and suggest or, or even volunteer some software craftsmanship level content for 
like next year? Yeah, and probably in the future I will record because they do a, like sort of a call for, you know, what do you want to talk about? And, and you get to, to moderate on it. So yeah, next year, it, you know, if I, if I go, I will probably suggest some of those things that kind of, you know, just encourage that best practices behavior of, you know, are you guys even testing? I mean, some of these companies are writing really old languages and, you know, they're, they're their job is to try to squeeze as much money out of it as they can. They much rather you just squeeze much money out of the current product you have. And then if you need a new product, cause it's failing, it was like in Cobol or something, we'll just go buy another company that's newer. <laughs> right. And oh my put them under you. And, yeah. I mean, that's sort of the strategy, right? We'll just buy another company that's doing it better. And then, and then, then there you go. So it's a very different mindset. That was not where I expected that to go at all. You were talking about like, okay, well, when it starts to die, that then you that then you take on the rewrite or something, and then you no, you don't take the the, yeah, they yeah, hate yeah. rewrites. I mean, that's that's oh. sort of the mantra. They're like, just keep putting lipstick on a pig, oh. as long as it's making money, and then if if it stops making money, we'll just we'll just spend the you know we'll spend a few million dollars and buy another a company that's you know doing it right, doing it better than you, and then make it part of your portfolio and just move all your customers to them. It's a very different kind of gig. It's, it's it's interesting when you have huge amounts of capital to play with. What the, the your mindset's like? Oh, well, why, why should we spend like the next two years trying to write something? Well, we'll just we'll just buy something that's already doing it. We'll just buy another company. I mean, they recently bought a company uh, down in South Africa, who they're projecting in the next couple of years will be one point four billion dollars in net revenue. Dang. So, and that's just a slice of a tiny part of the company that that they're a part of that makes it up so it's very different level so I, I guess maybe that's kind of why they focus on that uh, but it's like at the end of the day I'm, I'm just like we're all software companies let's 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 make good software <laughs> it's not gonna hurt yeah it's a good strategy it's not gonna hurt the bottom line so. and I mean you know taking good care of the software that you got now will make it last longer yeah there were several tracks on technical debt which we were thinking about talking about tonight but there were some good tracks on technical debt and we we've been building these best practices playbooks and I talked about how to build an honest roadmap in the earlier show yep. we we presented our roadmap paper to the group and got got good results and a lot of the paper was talking about putting technical debt as part of your software roadmap making sure that 20% of your your roadmap is like dealing with technical debt so I felt that was good that we you know, kept that in front of people. Very cool. How many people go to this conference? Just for my... There was like 1,200 people. Oh, that's pretty sizable. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. So it's pretty good size. From all over the world. I mean, people from Australia, people from South America, people from Africa. I mean, pretty much every continent except Antarctica was represented. <laughs> so... Cool. So our topic today, expectations of professional software engineers. Tim, you sent this link to us and you seem to have Probably had the best read of it amongst the three of us. So where do you want to go with this? Yeah. So I just want to kind of preface this. This is not like best coding practices. This is sort of about being a professional software engineer. So it's like coding is just a tiny part of that. It's about how to be good at your job overall beyond just the, the chops of, you know, writing good tests, writing good code, things like that. And the the article is Adam Johnson, but he is referring to a, a talk given by Mike Acton. So Mike Acton is uh, from a, a video game development background. Most of this is applicable to what we do, but just got to realize he's coming from a video game background. So when he starts talking about platforms and 
those sort of things, hardware considerations. That's the world he's coming from there. But I just I thought it was interesting because it's a bunch of it's like 50 I statements. So I can do this or I have confirmed or I can explain 50 things that that you should be able to positively say that you do. And so the first few are really a whole lot about articulating the problem and understanding the issue that that's being worked on. So like, for instance, number one, I can articulate precisely what problem I'm trying to resolve. Right. And that seems pretty simple, but I mean, how many times, you know, sometimes maybe it's just some sort of bug and mm-hmm. you're just trying to make the bug go away, but you really don't have a good grasp of what is the issue I'm trying to solve. We can kind of get stuck in the weeds. What's the goal? And is there an alternative path? See, I, I like this one. I think I would also maybe a slightly different perspective would be like, I'm not just implementing whatever spec was handed to me. Like I understand the problem. Right. Yeah, I'd go so far, though, as to say that sometimes, maybe a lot of the time, it's unclear. I don't even know if I'm solving a problem, meaning I I, I have an inkling that something is wrong. And I have right. an inkling that I can do something to help alleviate that possible point of friction. But I, and I don't really know, and I don't have a, a horde of users that I can just ask and I don't want to go to the product people because they'll just shoot me down. So a, a lot of time, a lot <laughs> is, of times, is this I'm the just point like, where we admit that Ben is actually a machine learning algorithm? Or <laughs> <laughs> so, but but literally, I will just I'm like I, I for me, it's always weighing the potential value against the potential level of effort. So if I can look at something and say, hey, I can I can code something that might attack this problem in a couple of hours I, to some degree, like I almost don't even care if it's going to add value because it's, it's such a low risk. So sometimes I'll build something and I can't even really clearly articulate what value it's going to have. And I just want to put it out there and see if anyone starts to use it. And then sometimes you build something and you start to play around with it and, and just having it on the screen in front of you kind of seeds new ideas and then you can start to solve different problems based on that. So I I don't know if that's a great use of time per se, but but definitely there are there are moments not infrequently where I'm I'm solving a problem that I can't articulate, but I'm not against that, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think what yeah. you're describing sounds like a creative exercise, right? Not so much like a a bug squashing, but just like a, a there might be room for improvement here. A, a better tool or, or something useful, but we don't exactly know what it is yet until we right. try it on. Exactly. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how many times like I start working on a problem and at the beginning I have it kind of clear in my head. Here's the problem I'm trying to solve. And then I start getting caught in these code corners. And then I start my my shift goes to fixing those problems. And then I wind up in the rabbit hole and I realize that I and I back out and go, wait, 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 this really isn't solving the problem I'm dealing with right here. I'm just, mm. I'm just trying to overcome this hurdle here. This hurdle really maybe has nothing to do with the actual problem I'm dealing with. And I got to back out, cut a bunch of code out and then, you know, attack the actual problem I'm trying to solve. And well, if, so if you're dealing with customer support, let's say that, you know, people are, and this happens tons of times, people will say, oh, I'm getting this problem. Whenever I do this, this happens. Or like, all right, so, and then they will try to suggest a solution. Right. So like tons of times I'll get, we'll get customer support tickets. Like, can you make this do this? 
You got to back them and say, all right, wait, wait, mm-hmm. what are you trying to solve here? Mm-hmm. What's the actual problem? What are you trying to do? And then when you find out what they're actually trying to do, you're like, no, no, <laughs> there's a completely different way we need to go about this than, than, than doing what you're asking to do. Yeah. Yeah. That, although that I have in my experience, I could say that that is occasionally taken to the extreme where I've been very almost, I almost refuse to give users what they're asking for to the point where we don't solve the problem at all. And I could have just given them the thing that they were asking for and they would have been happy. But it's like, I was so against that, that Mm. we ended up not doing anything. So I I agree with you in the vast majority of cases, but I think there are times when sometimes users just, just want the thing that they want and, and there's, there's no placating them. No. And I think there's the communication. So the second one is about, I have articulated precisely what problem I'm trying to solve. And so if you're on a team, this is particularly useful. So like at our standup, a lot of times I'll, I'll ask, you know, people, what are you, you know, what are you working on? Got any roadblocks, things like that. And they'll talk about kind of what they're doing and the strategies they're trying to do to implement something. But I think sometimes it's good to just, you know, say, all right, so you're doing X, Y, Z using this methodology. You know, what is it again we're trying to solve? And it, Sometimes I sound a little stupid in the stand-up because it's like, I obviously should know what they're working on. <laughs> but it's like, all right, so what is it you're here you're trying to solve? And they're like, okay, so we're trying to do dual factor authentication kind of thing. All right. So, so does that really align with the strategies you have in place? Yeah, yeah, I like how the first couple on this list are like, I can articulate precisely what the problem is. I have, uh, right. I can, I've confirmed that somebody else can articulate it. It's all about like, Knowing the problem and communicating well amongst the team, I think. Yeah, and number number five is big. It's like I can't articulate how much my problem is worth solving. Mm-hmm. Right. A lot, a lot of times, sometimes we just kind of get hung up on a pet peeve. And and this, Mike Acton says, if you say it's it's worth as long as it takes, he's not going to have any nice words for you. So I mean, <laughs> you have to say what is the maximum amount of effort we're, and time and effort we're going to do with this problem. Sometimes, sometimes you got to cut it off and say, all right, I, if I'm going to spend this much time trying to solve this problem and this problem maybe affects like less than a percent of, of users, maybe you need to rethink your, your actions here because that, that's not an effective use of time. It's hard sometimes though when you're dealing with something more like technical debt where mm-hmm. you, you can say that the way that the application or an area of the code is written right now is hard to maintain and it's hard to build new features. But then to ask for time from your product managers, hey, can I take two weeks, a month or whatever to refactor this area of code? And they say, okay, well, what's that going to get us? I never know how to answer that question. I can tell them that it'll be easier to make changes in the future, but I don't, I can't, I can't promise them that I, I can't guarantee a value. I can guarantee that it's, it's gonna, I don't know what I can guarantee. That's, that's the most frustrating part for me sometimes. Mm. I feel like I saw something recently that was discussing technical debt and it, it dove into the metaphor of like borrowing money from a bank. I, I, I have no idea where I saw this. My best guess is an article on lead dev, but I kind of want to go dig that up because I'm sure that there's something in there that could help you crystallize some thoughts. Mm. Man, I wish I could remember. 
It'd be easier to articulate if there was a big thing that was being prevented from the technical debt, like, oh, I'd love to build feature XYZ, but I can't because it's so complicated right now. Because then mm-hmm. at least you could look to feature XYZ and say, here's the value that we think this will have, and let's remove the blockers. But yep. if there's just this general sense, everything in this area of the code is just hard to work on, just period. And, and you might not have anything that you're supposed to be working on in there, but you know that things might come up in the future or just by refactoring the code. Again, there's a sort of evolutionary creative process where while I'm refactoring it, I might generate new ideas as I'm putting the code together. It's tough. There's, there's, there's a lot of fuzziness when it comes to value add. So who among us doesn't have that one file or that one function that, or that one feature that nobody wants to touch, right? Like everybody's mm-hmm. scared of it because if they, <laughs> if they put their yeah. fingers in there, then the, the, you know, it's just going to fall apart and everybody's going to be mad at them. I think if, like, if you had the opportunity to refactor that and improve it, then that's, and, and like, if you can guarantee like, okay, well, it's not going to, my goal is to, to not change the functionality of the feature at all, but I want to make it so that nobody's scared to fix bugs mm-hmm. that are in it. I think that would be awesome. I don't know how you state that value in, in like a business way. Hmm. It's so hard. Here's one that, I mean, this is probably for me the hardest. Number nine, I can clearly articulate unknowns and risk associated with my current problem. So the reason that's hard is if I can articulate it, obviously it's not unknown to me. Well, there's, so. there's, there's known knowns, there's known unknowns, and there's unknown unknowns. It's the known yeah. unknowns. The known unknowns. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. But yeah, there's, there's some parts of it, it's like, yeah, how come you didn't know that? It's like, because it didn't happen when I was yeah. testing it out and right. But yeah, I mean, so there might be some black boxes and things that you don't really fully know how those black boxes that you're talking to react that I can, you know, say are unknowns. They're known unknowns, but yeah, there's no way to know every unknown. Yeah, I agree. And also I think that, you know, the point of this one is to encourage us to take a minute, take a breath, think about the problem, you know, take the time to go, okay, well, what could be an unknown here? Because I, I don't know about you, but personally, I, when I'm attacking a problem, I get the problem, I understand the problem, and I immediately, my brain just wants to go, okay, like, here's the code, here's the fix, write it, go. Mm-hmm. Your fingers just have to keep up with brain. And I think that this, this point, this list item is about you know, when we're talking about expectations of professional software engineers, you know, that I think that expectation is that you have the patience and the discipline to think deeply about the problem, I guess for a, a bigger problem that's worth thinking deeply about, right? Like if there's a typo, you don't have to think deeply about that, but, you know, take the, have the discipline and the patience to think deeply about the problem before you try to attack it, because, you know, doing that might help you come up with a better solution, might identify the unknowns that are going to change the way you approach the problem or, or stop you from doing it altogether, right? Like you figure out that we can't do this because we're missing this or whatever. Mm -hmm. I find, I know a lot of people don't like creating tickets for their work, or I know Carol has talked about taking (laughs) screenshots of conversations to put them in tickets. Mm -hmm. I, I find that I will sit down and I'll just write out the ticket titles and I'll, I'll write like, I'll create like 20 tickets in a row 
and I don't put any descriptions in them at all. It's just, it's just like the one in Jira. So in Jira, maybe to be more specifically, there's a title for the card and then there's a description. And a lot of times what I want to do, I'll just put in the title as a little sentence and just the act to your point of sitting down and sort of closing my eyes and thinking about the steps that I want to take. It, it makes the entire problem seem so much more approachable. You know, on the onset, it feels overwhelming. Like, oh, there's so much work we're going to have to get done. And then by the time you've written out just the, you know, the one-liners for 25 different tickets, you're like, oh, all right, I see the path forward. We got this. Hundo P. <laughs> <laughs> but here's one that I 100% agree with. I have not thought or said I can just make up the time without immediately talking to someone. So the situation the context here is you got a, something to do on friday it's wednesday and someone drops a new task in your lap you know that's complete a complete total inject and you think oh i can just make up the time there <laughs> this says you know stop right now talk to your product talk to your product manager and help manage the timing and risk because you're like oh i can just yeah, i wasn't expecting this but it's a new thing i'm gonna just do it i'll make it up later you probably won't Yo, yeah, well sort of dovetailing with this there's been a lot of talk on podcasts that I've been listening to lately about stigmatizing hero culture. Mm-hmm. And, and this actually mm-hmm. goes back a little bit to the, the Phoenix Project, which was a, an audio book that we talked yeah. about like a year ago. And how historically we celebrate the people that are like, oh, so-and-so worked all night to get everything done. You're like, oh, well, it's so amazing. Like what a, what a, you know, coding ninja. And they're like, no, that's terrible. We shouldn't, we shouldn't ever celebrate anything like that. That should be frowned upon. And if someone has to work all night to get something done, then we should figure out how to not make that ever happen again. And it was funny because I was just listening to a podcast the day where they were talking about that. And literally, I came in the next morning and I saw in Slack that someone had been up all night trying to solve a problem that had occurred at like eight o'clock that night. And they were working all night trying to figure it out. And then in the in the all hands meeting that day, they were celebrating this guy and they're like, oh, so like, oh, he's really, you know took one for the team and he was up all night working to, to make things happen. And I was like, like oh. mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, we're just, we're just trying to make up the time. But is that sort of like a live outage kind of thing? So that's the thing that bothered me the most about it is that it wasn't, it, if it couldn't have been solved and the guy went to sleep, life would have went on. Like it wasn't okay. not like we weren't accepting payments or anything like that. Like it was, an unnecessary all-nighter from from what i could see and you know i think mm-hmm. it's 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 <laughs> it's so hard to not celebrate hero culture and also not sound like you're telling someone that they did the wrong thing mm-hmm. like it's it's i we appreciate that he did it i wish that he had chosen not to do it kind of a it's hard to word that well mm. i know if i lose any sleep at all i'm devastated so even the idea of working late into the evening, I'm like, oh, it's, it's terrible. Mean, you didn't even want to do these podcasts until the, in the evening. Yeah. <laughs> You're ready for bed. <laughs> exactly. And let's see. So here's another one. Number 12, I can articulate what the test for completion of my current problem is. Now, when it says test, it doesn't mean like TDD. It's basically saying, how do you know when to stop? How do you know when you've achieved what you've needed to do? And I mean, I think that one would probably be pretty easy for most people. It's like, all right, does it work? Does it return the right thing? Does it pass all the tests? 
but maybe in the video game, video game world, it's a little different. Yeah, it's uh, funny when we, before we started this, I noticed that the word test only appears right there where you just said it. I can articulate what the test for completion of my current problem is. I found it interesting that automated testing doesn't appear on this list considering some of the discussions that we've had on the podcast and in our Discord about mm-hmm. how automated testing, in some people's opinion, is table stakes for being a professional web developer. It just I, I found it interesting. That's all. Yeah. Well, I think also yeah. what's interesting about this one is that I think it can very wild, widely what is considered to have solved the problem. Meaning, these days because I have so little time on the legacy platform left, I go into everything with a with the mantra that it's not enough, but not enough is better than nothing. And that's very different mindset than someone who's coming in thinking that they have to deliver a highly polished product. And we're both looking at the context, thinking to ourselves, you know what, this is solving the problem, but we're just, our, our level of entry, I think, our barrier to enter and what that's on what is on what a quote unquote solution is, is very different. So it, I, I guess like as long as you can articulate it in your context, then it's, then it's good, but it does. I think it is going to be very different from situation to situation. Yeah, for sure. And now this one, I don't understand. So maybe you guys can help me because it sounds really like super nerdy and smart. <laughs> I can articulate the hypothesis related to my problem and how I could falsify it. So if a hypothesis cannot be proven wrong, there's no knowledge to be gained. As Karl Popper showed, science only works through falsification. I have no idea what that means. Way over my head. To me, this feels like a data question. So at work, I I feel like the people who pose hypothesis-based stuff at work are are the data people. And they're, they're looking at funnels and conversions, and they're like, if we can get someone to engage more with this feature then they're going to be more likely to be using this feature over the next seven days. And they're going to pull more people into the conversation. And there's going to be some sort of, there's like this downstream effect to what they're doing. So a lot of the stuff they do can be falsified, I think, just by looking at the data. Like they say, Mm -hmm. this is the outcome that we're expecting in terms of the numbers. And then you look at the numbers and either the numbers are there or they're not there. Right, but at the same time, I think what this is saying is like, if the hypothesis isn't like let's just use the word crisp if the hypothesis isn't crisp enough then it won't be possible to prove it false and so there's nothing mm-hmm. it, it like it's almost like it means nothing right yeah like if the hypothesis is like shade of blue a is better than shade of blue b at getting conversions and like you just can't if a conversion is you know three or four steps away and you can't prove that one that that's the only factor that changed that affected them then then the shade of blue test is you know not proving what it's trying to prove if that makes sense mm, okay well i think also if you change more than one thing at a time yep. it's hard to tell which thing actually made the difference or if true they work together to make the difference that that kind of stuff is challenging yeah i was thinking yeah. that's exactly where i started thinking when i stopped talking <laughs> isolating <laughs> variables yeah yeah i've seen that yeah so it's because there's sometimes we you know there's a problem we deploy a fix we don't deploy two at the same time we deploy one to see if and if that one fails and you know 
you, you learn something from that. So you deploy the second one. But also it could be like, you know, the hypothesis is that, I, you know, I think that by moving this to a certain place, you know, the top right corner where the eye tends to go, I'm going to get, you know, 20% more up clicks, you know, because of that. So you, you move that there. It has to, there has to be a pass or a fail there, right? It can't, it can't be kind of a gray area. It's got to, yeah. It, it's also hard sometimes, and this kind of goes back to being able to articulate the problem that you're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I see at work, they'll be saying, Hey, we need more people to try feature A. So we're going to add this button over here that says try feature A. And then they're like, and then we'll just look at how many people click on that. And I'm like, but that didn't, that doesn't tell you anything about whether or not people want to use feature A or if they're going to come back and use feature A or if it's, if it's adding value to their day. Like you just added a new button that wasn't there before and you want to see how many people click it. Like that's not, there's no problem being solved. So it's, it's hard mm. to sometimes bring it back to a, a business proposition too. I'm going to jump a little bit. So this one, I have sat and watched an actual user of my system. Number 23. Has anybody ever, ever actually done that? Yes and no, right? Like not, not a professional user testing, but I have, well, actually, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about my current job, but at previous jobs, and again, not professional user testing, but very hands-off, like sort of second degree away, like, we write the software, we turn it over to somebody else, and they then implement it and, and have users use it. One of my previous jobs, we wrote quote unquote simulations and serious games and for teaching business concepts, right? So like OPEC or stock market or prisoner's dilemma type stuff. So I'm not talking like video games, just like you know, text-based sort of web things. Mm-hmm. And and then we would turn those over to professors at the business school and let them use them with their students. And occasionally we got the opportunity to sit in on the class and watch these things happen and see how the students interacted with it and see them learn, I think was part of the the goal of that exercise, but also, you know, get the opportunity to see firsthand how the tool helps them reach that learning outcome and, and try to see if we can do a better job of reaching that learning outcome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah so, the, I mean, I will say this is one good thing. So the, parent company that were part of one of our previous quadrants that we did they part of the assignment was they told us to go visit our top two customers and see how they use our system actually just go in their office and we did that so we went in their office and we actually sat down with like different levels of users because they're all different users you know how are you actually using our software and it, i mean it was enlightening it was like you, yeah. we saw people doing these kind of workarounds that were like, why are you doing it that way? They would go, well, if I if I don't do it this way, then X Y Z happens. Like, okay, and it was it was, I mean, it was expensive exercise, <laughs> but because we had like a big group of people that were going to this, but we did actually learn something. And then also at the same time, you know, they wanted us to like say find some other business problem that wasn't like part of our software. Like, what are they doing in their office that's unrelated to your software that maybe we could build some software to sell to them? So. But but actually actually watching a person sit down and click and type and see what they do is was quite enlightening. So I don't know if that's a must do, but I find a lot of the time. So I very rarely actually get to see users use our system. The only time I really get to see it is either when I've been asked to join a support call because a customer is mm-hmm. having a problem and we need to get a bunch of people on the call to see if we can figure it out, 
or occasionally the customer-facing team, they'll record snippets of their conversation with their customers to share internally. And it's, I, I love it. I, I really wish it was something that I could weave more into my weekly routine somehow. I don't know what that would look like, but it's, it's, I, I almost don't even care what the users are talking about. I just want to hear them talk about the system in any way that they want to, whether it's good things or bad things. They, they'll just say the most random stuff and it'll spark an idea. And then the idea becomes a feature later on. And, and you would have never thought to do that because you didn't realize that that was a problem someone was having. So that's, it, it's so, the, that, that's like the, the biggest missing part in my, professional career is getting more face time with users, which is weird to say, cause I don't like dealing with people, but I, I do wish I could somehow not deal with people, but then also deal with more customers. Got to be a fly on the wall. It, mm-hmm. it is crazy though. You're talking about the, the workarounds that users come up with. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's almost, it's mind boggling. Some of the things that they'll come up with and be like, Oh yeah, this, uh, I was trying to generate this Excel document, but it wasn't working. But I found out that if I, like went to the print preview and then I copied the print preview over to Microsoft text pad. And then I exported that as an, as a rich text document file. And then I could import that into Google sheets and then export it as an Excel file. You're like, what? <laughs> how did you, how did you figure that out? You're a crazy person, but that's amazing. Jeez. All right. How about this one? I know specifically how I can and will debug live release builds of my work when they fail. What number is that? 32. Yeah, you know, just remote desktop to prod and <laughs> edit the code, you know, FTP and and just, you know, edit and save. Send an email. Yeah. Email with a, with a bug context. I, I do think that's a big one because a lot of times like your your production builds might be, you know, somewhat slightly different from your development. It's the whole works on my machine thing, right? So how are you going to deal with that whenever production is like erring, but it works every single place else? Right. How can you, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? Right. So what logs are you going to look at? You have some sort of a debugger live shell to look at in there. Yeah. Yep. Because if you don't know how to do that, it's like someone has to do that because it's going to happen. I want to go back a couple here on the list. Number 26, I can articulate the finite set of hardware I'm designing my solution to work for. So in our context, web development, what I think this means is screen resolution, not only Mm. on the desktop, but also on like phones and tablets. I had a bug come in today that basically somebody did something dumb in our app and they did it because A, we didn't stop them from doing it, but B, the place where we were warning them that they were doing it was just off screen. It was like below the fold. <laughs> and, you know, so the the solution was easy. It was move the warning up above the fold and, and add some extra validation. You know, it's just because I have a, a gigantic like 34-inch monitor that I do my development on. And, you know, I, I forgot that, you know, you got to resize the window and, and treat yourself like somebody with a 24-inch tiny little monitor running 1024 by 768. God. Do you remember when that seemed like it was so huge? Yo, well, and what was before that? It was like 640 by 480. Yep. Oh man, that's crazy. If you, if you ever, if you ever put that, like open up a graphics program and draw a rectangle that's 640 by 480, it's, it's like a comically small. Yeah. It's like the size of your watch face. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, iPhone, the original like iPhone, the width of the screen is 320. So that's half yeah. of the, the 640. <laughs> that's crazy. Oh, man. Yeah, we've had customers who literally couldn't figure out how to submit a form because the submit button just happened to be right below the fold of the oh, page. Oh, God. And you're like, oh, that's a hard one to solve. <laughs> you gotta scroll down. But the, 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 so the related one on 28 there recently profiled the performance of the system. I think any, anything performance related, that's where I start to get really fuzzy on mm. having a plan. Like my plan is usually it either breaks the system or it doesn't. And like anything that falls in the doesn't category is sort of like good enough for now, but. I don't have, I don't have good strategies there. Yeah. One good strategy that I don't have is like, so you have a lot of these tables and you're doing these joins and when the data set is kind of small, no problem. Mm. All of a sudden the data set starts to expand and, and all like, Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> we really need some better indexes on this thing to, mm-hmm. to make this run better. So that's bit me in the butt a few times in life. But that's also, you could look at it as a good thing, right? It's not, you didn't prematurely optimize, right? Like, yeah, it's one thing if you are if you don't have enough data in your development environment to, or in QA if that's where you want to do it to to find these problems before they hit production, and then a problem happens like as soon as you release, that is unfortunate and hopefully preventable. But like yeah. you know, if you build a new feature and it doesn't have the index and and, and whatever performance tuning it needs in order to scale well when in five years it finally has enough data that it's a problem. I, I call that a win. I call that not yeah. premature optimizing. Although I'll say something at work, and I don't know if this is just like a, a, a insecurity about database performance, but I, I see this time and time again where a developer will have a feature and they've, they've added a new table to the database and the data is starting to grow. And, and they'll start to get slow query alerts or the CPU on the database will go high and they'll look some, they'll look somewhere at what's happening. And they're like, Oh, this table, there's a full table scan because we're looking mm-hmm. up by user ID, but there's no index on user ID. And then they're like, all right, well, now we need to come up with a strategy for adding the index in a preview environment and then load testing it to make sure it's right. I'm always like, you don't have to load test it. You're doing a full table scan now. Anything yeah. less than a full table scan is good. Like, just add the index. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I don't know. It's, uh, maybe I fly too fast and loose. Yeah. Well, that's just my default mode. So, like, don't, don't <laughs> fix it. Till, don't fix it until till you know that's a problem. But with monitoring, you kind of get ahead of that. When you start seeing things that, are, that were taking milliseconds before, now they're taking seconds. You're like, eh, yeah, yeah. You probably you need to take a look at that. I'm going to jump down to 38. I like this one. I never used. Oh no, thirty nine. I never use the phrase "future proof" when referring to my work. Future proofing is one hundred percent a fool's errand. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, I feel you got feelings there, yeah, man. No, no, like I feel, I feel attacked. But this, <laughs> this is a struggle. I think this is a struggle. It's hard to. It takes a tremendous amount of discipline, in my experience, to start down the path of problem solving and not see all the things that might happen one day and and feel like you and feel like you can ignore them for now. I I'm I'm getting better at that, but it is still very hard to do and and I feel like every time I I approach a new problem, I have to I have to re put myself in that mindset. Yeah. 
I mean, the caveat of that is, is it's saying that you can't pre-solve problems you have no information of. But if you have some information that leads you to believe that there's going to be a problem, I don't see that as as future proofing, right? That's like it's a tendency, it's a trend, but it's like you're trying to solve a problem that's not even happening right now. That's premature optimization, right? And we've talked about it before. This this got me. This bit me in the. Uh, I'm trying to think of how to articulate this. Well, I was going to say, I, I wasn't going to say bit me in the butt because I almost didn't make it that far. And that's the thing is, so I wanted to build at one point an audit log. We've talked about auditing stuff before mm-hmm. and, and I've never really built an audit log in my life. And I, I was thinking, I'm like, oh, maybe I could just have some sort of table that's like, this user did the, a thing. Here's the thing that they did. And like, here's a text area column that's like any other metadata that I might want to include with it. And uh, it just felt so sloppy. <laughs> and and I went to the architecture team here and I was like, this doesn't feel right. Like, can you guys give me some advice on how you might want to track things? And then, of course, they immediately went down the, you shouldn't be using a database table for this. You should be using some sort of like text-based document service or, or some other kind of document store, data store that's more mm-hmm. scalable. And then like, I was like, oh, well, now you want me to do multiple layers of things that I've never done before. That's not. I don't want to solve multiple problems. And so then I ended up just not building it at all. And, and, it, <laughs> and, and, I, and I think back to that and I'm like, I was so nervous about not being able to solve. Like I was afraid that I would build this audit table and then people would need to access it in a way that I hadn't anticipated and I wouldn't know how to deal with that because maybe I hadn't stored the data that they needed or I hadn't stored some reference that they needed or you couldn't look up the references fast enough or something or sort them by date. I don't know. Like I just had so much anxiety about it, about Problems that I didn't know what they were, and then I ended up just not building it at all. And that it doesn't feel like a win. Like it feels like a better solution would have been to build something. Anyway, I'll stop. I'll stop uh, <laughs> barfing into the yeah, microphone. It just, here. I, I forget what the name of the department was or the people that you, the team that you took your concerns to, but the architecture when you were describing, team. yeah, yeah. So when you described their response, my first thought was like, so you took it to like early stage stack overflow. Basically, that was the response you got back was like, well, you need to be doing X, Y, and Z. Shouldn't use jQuery for that. You should put that in some sort of a, an elk stack with a Kibana open text <laughs> searching. And I'm like, bro, I, yeah. I, I already got a database. <laughs> Why use the database I already have? Mm-hmm. Number 40, I feel I can schedule my own time well. You're an adult person, just use a calendar. <laughs> You are a growing ass man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I'll tell you, so it's like I, I've gotten away when we first started recording, I was talking about how I have my checklist. I have a notepad that I used to keep by my desk here. I don't I got rid of that. I I, I don't use checklists anymore. I, everything because checklist doesn't necessarily relate to time. So it's like if I'm in a meeting and like I say, All right, the action item is I, I owe you this, this, and this. I, I I immediately go to my calendar. I block out 30 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever, how long I think it's going to take, put it on my calendar for some time in the future. And then when I wake up in the morning, I look at my calendar. I'm like, there's my time. There's what I'm working on. And other people will not schedule me during then because they can, they can see my calendar and say, I'm blocked out. So it's like my calendar has not, you know, sometimes it has some white space, but you know, I'm, I'm blocking out that time because otherwise, I'm not going to get it done. If I just working on a checklist, it's like that's sort of making me feel good. Like, you know, I, I check something off, but it's like if I know this is the time I'm working on this, I'm doing that, I get stuff done. I feel incredibly privileged that the vast majority of my schedule is wide open. 
Like we have a standing meeting yeah. every day and that can go from like five minutes to an hour, depending on what needs to be discussed. But it's like, other than that, I don't typically have any meetings in a week. And, and, you know, every, like every month I might have three or four meetings to add Dang. beyond that, with that one other meeting. And so like, I kind of want to block off, okay, you know, let's just say like from noon to, to end of day is my deep work time every day. But yeah. the, the, the times that stuff comes up is so random, right? Like there are, you know, maybe two, three times a week. It's like, okay, I need you to drop everything and work on this. Uh, that's ideal. I mean, that's, I mean, you're living the dream there, buddy. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Like I said, I feel privileged, but at the same time, like I, I, and I wish I could choose what time of day I'm just going to say like, no, I'm not doing anything, but my, my deep projects, because I think as we, since we are such a small team, like we have no choice, but to be more nimble and willing to, yeah. to jump around. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I wear a whole bunch of different hats. So it's like, it's like, all right, I'm putting on my, I mean, we're doing price increases hat. So I need to like schedule that out so I can do that. And I need to talk to legal hat. And then like, I'm going to do some, you know, someone has a new feature and I really kind of want to work on that feature. So I'm going to schedule, here's my coding period time there. So, but that's this past year, that's kind of been transfer, transformational for me. It's like I'm using my calendar rather than a, a checklist so that I can just make sure I got the time. And if I run out of space, I'm like, no, I can't. It's got to move. Nice, solid move. I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't think my time is as open as Adam's, but I don't, I don't have very many meetings. I have maybe like two meetings a day, and I feel, I feel like I actually use my time very well at work. I think that's that to me feels one of like one of my superpowers. The irony mm -hmm. is, is that as good as I am managing my time at work. I'm completely catastrophically the opposite personally. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I think the difference is, is that so much of my time management personally involves other people. And like, that's my kryptonite. The time management that I have to do at work is like, here's all the things I need to do mostly in isolation. And that feels so easy to do. The moment I have to return an email or make a doctor's appointment or respond to a text message, I'm like, I'm like, no, I'd rather just go crawl into a hole for the next couple of hours. <laughs> oh Ben you need to like start taking speed or something <laughs> children we do not recommend this it gets so much can't done see, can't see Tim winking no <laughs> <laughs> alright this one I, I'm passionate about this I, I'm vigilant about not wasting other people's time Yo. And it, for instance don't waste don't, don't ask a question that you could google Oh yeah. So I've kicked people. I mean, I got in trouble for this, but I kicked someone. Someone came in my office to ask me a question. I'm like, "Did you Google it?" <laughs> and she's like, "No." I'm like, "Then get out. <laughs> Come back when you Google it." <laughs> and then someone's like, "They made a company policy: don't ask Tim any questions." I'm like, what? No, that was not the point. That right. was not the point. But at the same time, don't waste your time if you're struggling for hours. Right. If you struggle, if you Googled it and then you still can't figure it out, you struggle, you know, go ask someone for help. But it's like, you got to find that balance there because, man, yeah, people ask that questions they didn't even Google just annoy me. You're, you're dead on. And it's funny, the, like the, all the things you just said, uh, talking about like, you know, don't ask immediately, spend, you know, a reasonable amount of time trying to figure it out for yourself, Google and 
just try, stare at it, read docs, whatever. Stack overflow. Right. But then, you know, also at the same time, like don't sit on it for a week because you can't figure it out. Like if you, yeah. mm-hmm. a couple of hours, if you can't figure it out and you know somebody knows the answer, then yes, interrupt them. The, I have, I think back when my company was three people, like before we hired our third person, I put together a Trello board that was like our onboarding documentation. It's like, okay, here's all the information for payroll and here's this and here's that. And also like just sort of like engineering team principles. And that was one of them. Like, Mm. you know, don't respect the flow state of other people. Yeah. Yeah. The, so when I, when I had my very first internship in college, they were walking me around the first day and they were introducing me to people and they, and they pointed over to this guy. He was at his desk and he had his headphones on and they're like, that's so-and-so when he has his headphones on, you're not allowed to talk to him because he's, you know, <laughs> like deep. and my gut reaction at the time was like, oh, so this guy's a jerk. <laughs> and then we're like, now maybe I feel bad. Maybe that's not the reaction I should have had. Maybe I should have respected people's times, but it just felt so weird. You're like, oh. What do you get to be in your special cone of silence? Like that's not how people work, but that was, I, I will say on the, on the flip side. So I did ask someone a question one time. I sent them a, a message. I don't remember what it was, Slack or whatever. And they sent me a, let me Google that for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, seriously, my blood was, I got to like murderous, like levels of <laughs> anger. And I was like, how dare you condescend to me? You, and then I had to like, <sighs> serenity now I, and I'm like dude you cannot throw stones here because you've done this to people over and over again in your lifetime so I can see how it can kind of feel if you're on the receiving end of like did you google it like but yeah just seriously just just google it first before you go ask a question because like stack overflow normally has the answer for you one thing that I'm very good at is switching context. I, I know historically a lot of programmers complain about context switching and like they, their whole mental map is destroyed and then it takes them like 20 minutes to get back into flow. That That's like a, not a point of friction that I've really ever felt. Uh, and I think maybe, again, we've talked about this before, I work on very small tasks, so I don't actually keep a lot of stuff in my head. Anyway, it's not a point of friction that I've ever felt. And I'll tell you, when I've worked with people, and and they'll be like, all right, I'm going to go offline for four hours because I got to get heads down and get some work done. I've I've always been like, I don't know. It always rubs me the wrong way a little bit. And then, and I know it's it's not fair because a lot of people it, like that just happens to be something I'm I think unusually good at. And it's it's I hate the fact that I have trouble seeing it from other people's perspective. But mm. yeah, I guess like sorry not to ramble, but like heads down as a as like a don't interrupt me i've I, I don't take that well like i find i find that strange and i hate that and i hate that i'm even saying that out loud because i know a lot of people get a tremendous amount of value from going down from going into a heads down mode but it just <laughs> seems <laughs> sorry what was that about being a grown-ass man <laughs> <laughs> moving on moving on so there's like several here about constructive feedback and not avoiding uncomfortable situations and conversations yeah so i, I think I, yeah those are hard I, I, those are really hard so it's like 
you see something in the company that you're like, you know, this isn't good. I don't feel good about this. Or maybe this particular person, they're not performing and talking about it. I mean, I still don't know if I'm comfortable with that. I mean, sometimes I just want to ignore it and say, not my monkeys, not my circus. But I mean, I, I get it. All of my biggest regrets at work are about not being more confrontational. Hmm. Those are all the wrong choices that I made. That's so frustrating. I, I wish that was something I was, I'm so terrible. I'm such a, I'm a, a catastrophically non-confrontational person. I mean, I am also to an extent, in, unless I'm, I feel I'm forced into it. Like, you know, people are like, what do you think is going on? I'm like, all right, I'm going to tell you the truth. But it's like, if, if I'm not asked, I'm not volunteering because I don't want to be the fly in the ointment, Right. Because those are hard things. And a lot of times if you get labeled the difficult one, mm-hmm. it can be hard on your hard on your career. But if they ask you, then you're like, well, okay, I'm going to tell you. But if you don't ask me, I'm not volunteering because I, I see the stuff going on here. I know this is all toxic. I recognize it. And maybe, you know, maybe you don't see it. So I was just going to say, I don't know if anyone ever has watched the show Grey's Anatomy. I was a huge Grey's yeah. Anatomy fan. and. uh no. There was this guy, Dr. Dr. Richard Weber, I think he was. He was like the chief of surgery. And I was always in such awe of him because he had, he had these wonderful, warm relationships with everybody. But then at a, at a moment when he needed to do it, he could just flip a switch and he would go into chieftain mode and he would just mm. lay down the law and tell people what's up. And then he'd go right back to having these wonderful, warm relationships. And I know that it's TV drama, mm-hmm. but I was always, I always looked at that and, and I wanted to have more of that in my life. Like, I wish I could do that. Yeah. It sounds like the, no, the exact opposite of Dr. Cox from Scrubs. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but I'll, I'll tell you, Ben, that there are people. So there are people in our organization who are like that. They, they're the most empathetic people. They, they, you feel when you talk to them, they understand you, but at the same time, they can like turn and yeah. go into straight, listen, you're messing up here. You need to get right, you know, and, but you don't feel attacked because you felt listened to before. So, you know, they're not attacking mm. you. They're just, they're trying to help you get better. But that is a really, that's a really hard place to be in as far as a person. So. I know. And I wish I could, I wish I could better understand where it comes from. I always chalk it up to confidence. Like I don't have, I think the confidence to be strong and feel like I'm, I'm not damaging the relationship. And, and I think, I don't, I don't know. I, I, again, I just wish I could figure it out. Mm. I can't, crack, I can't crack that code. It's a tough one. Yeah. Let's, let's finish up on 48. Okay. I like it. So I'll read it. I pursue opportunities to return value to the commons when appropriate. And so the context it gives here is all our work builds on top of the work of countless others. At some point, you'll have opportunities to give back to the community at large. For example, talking at meetups, making open source contributions, or even just discussing topics with your team to boost everyone's skills. You know, like making a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. Check. Exactly. It's on my calendar. <laughs> I do love it at work when people, we use Confluence at work. It's like a wiki from Jira mm-hmm. from Atlassian. People will just write up things like, oh, we had this hard problem to solve at work and, and here's the thing that we came up with and they'll write up a little Confluence page and drop it in the engineering chat. I love that. That's been, I, I love to see people sharing that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I think if you can like take something in that you built and like if it's appropriate, 
make it open source project. That's fantastic. I mean, I know Adam, you you built you know some open source projects and mm-hmm. been super helpful for me. So I appreciate I super appreciate that. Or and of course, yeah, we have this podcast, but just talking about you know just boosting people's skills and trying to get better at what we do as uh, craftsmen in this industry and trying to normalize the things that we all go through that maybe would have gone mm-hmm. unsaid mm-hmm. otherwise too. Yep. Yep. For sure. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a good list. I mean, there's some things I'm like, I scratch my head at, but the, for the most part, I'm like, you know, this is what, if you want, if you're a new person, like coming in, like just out of college and you think it's all about just like having skills and code, this really, this isn't code centric. This is about being a problem solver, about being a team player, about understanding what it is you're doing. And then honestly, being a good life, that's the hardest thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and a good, I mean, understanding what's going on is probably the hardest thing in life. <laughs> it, problems are so complex in life. So it's just being able to articulate the issue and understanding the issue and knowing when to stop working on the stuff. This is, I mean, I think this is great. So yeah, this is good. Good list. All right. Well, yep. This episode of Working Code is brought to you by being an adult person who uses a calendar. <laughs> and, and listeners like you. If you're enjoying the show and you want to make sure that we can keep putting more of whatever this is out into the universe, then you should consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons cover our recording and editing costs, and we couldn't do this every week without them. Special thanks, of course, to our top patrons, Monty, Sean, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but that's okay because I said it. I was going to butcher it in the in the Patreon description. Giancarlo, Giancarlo, sorry, but also not sorry. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> yeah. If you'd like to be one of those people that helps us out, you can go to patreon.com slash working code pod. And if you didn't pick up on it, new this week, Giancarlo, Giancarlo, Carlo Gomez. Thanks and, and uh, welcome aboard. New top patron. Nice. After show this week, Tim, you're going to tell us a little bit about your London trip, I think. Oh, yeah. I'm going to give you the lowdown on Adam Cameron, for sure. Yeah. Our number one hater. Cool, cool. The truth will be out. All right. And I, if I'm not mistaken, this episode comes out to the public on the 19th. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. This episode comes out on the 19th. So you've got one week from the time that this episode releases to get your questions in before we record our 100th episode. Crazy. Mm-hmm. While we eat spicy wings. Yeah. So we're doing a little bit of an AMA, AMA and, and punishing ourselves with extremely hot, spicy food. Uh, mm-hmm. You can find the link to ask us a question on our website. That's workingcode.dev. And that's all the homework I'll give you for today. Leave us a question, workingcode.dev. And yeah, so you can find us on Working Code Pod at Twitter or Instagram. You can join our Discord at workingcode.dev slash Discord. You can email us at workingcodepod at gmail.com. Send us a voicemail to the same email address. That's going to do it for us this week. We'll catch you next week. And until then, remember your heart matters, but mostly you, Adam Cameron, you <laughs> beautiful, beautiful beer drinking, curry eating, hot sauce taking, <laughs> lovely, lovely man. Bear swilling. But you're still our number one hater. You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.